So let's turn tonight to the book of Genesis chapter 1 and see how far the Lord will give us tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to sit on a new threshold as a Sunday night study group. Looking back over 10 years, going through every chapter of this great book that you've given to us. We pray, Father, that tonight our minds, as they are focused on him, our Savior, that we might comprehend the length and the depth and the breadth of your love for us, because we see, even in the first part of the Word of God, the plan to send a Messiah to save the world because of that great disease of sin. We pray, Lord, that our hearts might rejoice as we examine this book tonight and these chapters, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like tonight to give an introduction to the entire Bible, since we're beginning at the beginning. Something that we can reflect upon before we get into Genesis, and we'll see if we can take one chapter tonight or two chapters, but the introduction to the book, or the books, the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament is important. And uh, you may want to take notes so that you might uh, go over it. I always make it a, a practice uh, to carry either a pencil and paper or a notebook wherever I go, no matter who I hear, so that I might take notes, so that I, because I know that my mind cannot retain all the information given out. But I also know that I want to grow, and I'm not uh, in the least bit too proud to take notes and learn from others and share the ammunition and share the truths of Scripture. And so note-taking I highly recommend so that then you might go over them and say, Now, Lord, what truths are here for me? So we can apply ourselves to them. The Bible was given to us for three basic reasons. First of all, and perhaps the least, historic information. It tells us the past, where we've come from historically. It tells us the great epics of history. Though not in great detail, it will tell us where we came from, where the human race came from. How the nations in, for instance, Genesis 10 were divided and people scattered throughout the whole earth. It will give us historical information on the seed of Abraham, the Hebrew race. The second reason it's given is for doctrinal instruction. One of the things, however, that I love about the Bible is that it does not begin like a course in theology. It does not begin by saying, this is the doctrine of God the Father. God was created as one being in three persons and so forth. It doesn't begin like that. It begins with the creation, tells us about the people that God uses, his plan through the ages, but unfolds a doctrinal inspiration for us, a doctrine, who God is, why we're here, where we're we going, the need of man, the need of salvation. They're all presented in the scripture. And finally, spiritual inspiration. Peter summed it up wonderfully in his book when he said, God has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
Everything you need for spiritual inspiration is given in this book. Everything you need to grow and become strong, to become effective, every problem you will face can be matched by the knowledge of Scripture. Better than any psychologist's couch, better than any seminar, better than any self-help book, the knowledge of Scripture, the Word of God, as applied by the Spirit of God to a child of God, is powerful. Everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Therefore, it only makes sense that we study it. As we're admonished by the Apostle, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed. To dig into it and to study it. Now let's face it. It's easier to read books about the Bible than it is to read the Bible. That's why study Bibles are so popular. You know the kinds with all of the notes underneath them? Because I find many people will read the notes rather than the text. It's easier. It's harder to study on your own, but it's necessary as we unravel it tonight. The Bible, first of all, should be studied like any other book should be studied. It should be studied unlike any other book, but first of all, it should be studied like any other book. Just like you take a document, even an ancient document, and you apply certain hermeneutical principles, principles of study, you should at least give the Bible a fair shake like that, studying it like you would any other book. Now, there are several methods by which we study it. Sunday night is our bird's eye view or telescopic view. And that's by taking books or portions of the Scripture and taking a broad view of it. Because it's important that we get the whole context of truth. Remember the old saying that you can forget the forest because of the trees? You can be blinded to the whole thing? Well, there are people who can focus just on a tree, a text. One little truth, and they forget the balance, the symmetry, the beauty of all the trees next to each other in context. So we need that broad range of covering several chapters at a time or a section at a time. I would recommend, if you want to get a thorough grasp of a book of the Bible, read that book several times through, over and over and over again. You will be amazed how much you didn't see the first time, nor the second time, nor the third time. A general overview. G. Campbell Morgan, the great prince of preachers in the last century, said that before he would give any comment on a book of the Bible, he would read it through 50 times first. Before he grabbed any book, before he put pen to paper, he would read the book through 50 times to get that telescopic view, the whole counsel of God. Then there's the microscopic method where you take a little tiny section, perhaps even a verse or a phrase. Now, we do that on Thursday nights. Tonight is our telescopic method. Thursday night, if you're into it, is our microscopic method. And you can slow down and take a small portion of the Scripture, and it will speak volumes to you. For instance, you can study the Beatitudes one at a time and develop whole studies around them, and we've done that. And you can show how that the Beatitudes show the progression of the Christian life. Psalm 1 is a great psalm to study all by itself. How you can become happy and blessed and a full, rich life is found. All the secrets of that are found in Psalm 1. 
Blessed or oh how happy to be envied is the man who first of all does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't listen to the ungodly. He doesn't use the ungodly for his advice or sounding board. Nor does he stand with the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. And you could develop each one. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. So you can slow down, and if you're into that, again, Thursday nights, we do just that. We're going through the book of Jude. We've spent two weeks covering three quarters of the first verse. You stop, you look at each word, you unfold the truths of the word, of the context, you reach back into Old Testament, New Testament history, you look forward and you just, you meditate on it. By the way, meditation is a lost art among Christians and it shouldn't be. If any of you have ever been on a farm, you've noticed cows who go out early in the morning when the dew is on the grass and they'll, they'll take a big bite of it, they'll chew it. But Hours into the day, you'll see them resting under a tree, chewing something. You think, what on earth are they chewing? There's nothing around them to graze on. What they're doing is they're chewing their cud. That which they put in their stomach in the morning, they bring it back up again. Now we know that a cow has a complex stomach, several compartments, and it's taken down, brought back up, chewed on. All the little nutrition, nutrients are gotten out of it. It goes into another chamber. It's brought up. We ought to do that with the scripture and you'd be amazed at slowing down and meditating on it, what it can do for your life. Now I personally love, probably better than any of them, is the through the Bible method, our Sunday night method. There's just something about gleaning things out of the large portions of the scripture, reading it through and seeing the trees in symmetry in the forest. Now, as we said then, the Bible should also be studied unlike any other book. Why? Because it's unique. It is inspired of God. It's 66 books written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year time period on three different continents, three separate languages, people separated by time, space, occupation, language, but all write with such incredible symmetry and unity. It's unique. God placed those books together as proven by the accuracy of Scripture. We are told every word of God is pure, infallible, inerrant, inspired. The Bible is different because while other books give knowledge, the Bible calls for obedience. What is the goal of Bible study? Somebody might quickly respond, interpretation, wrong. It is application to our personal lives. That's the goal, is that I might know what it says, that I might do what it says. Jesus told his disciples, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So the goal is that I might apply the truths, not just know what they say and become some kind of a Bible nerd with all sorts of formulas and clever things that I might know, but that I might be so impressed with God's word that it applies to my life. So we begin by making observation. We observe what the text says, who it was written to, why it was written. We make historic observation. And after we make observation, we make interpretation. Who wrote it? Why was it written? What does it mean to whom it was written originally? 
After observation and interpretation comes application. We apply it to our lives. But we can't apply it to our lives until we've made interpretation. Otherwise, you'll come up with erroneous personal application. And then the fourth phase is implementation. We apply it. We see how it fits and what it means to us. And then by God's grace and strength, we go out and implement that on a daily basis and we watch our lives begin to change radically into the image of Jesus Christ. So as we approach every Bible study, whether personally in the morning or corporately in the evening like this or Sunday morning, we should be as Samuel, who when God spoke to him, his answer was, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Now the Bible is different for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a dual authorship. It's written by men, but it's written by the Holy Spirit. For we read in the scripture that men of old, the prophets, no prophecy came by private interpretation, but holy men spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Though they had their own personalities, they wrote with their own twist, God the Holy Spirit made sure that they used the words that would carry forth His words, His inspired ideas, infallible and inerrant, so that it would end up exactly what He wanted to say as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible requires then three things. First of all, attention. Our mind should be awake. It should be focused. Don't study the Bible with your TV on, your radio on, talking to your kids, oh, kind of in between. Give full attention to it. So first of all, attention. Second of all, retention. Your mind should be put into it to memorize it, to know it, so that you might recall it. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It will give you an edge when you're tempted by the devil, if you can retain the truths of God in your mind. Now, there's all sorts of ways to memorize it. You know, some people come up with fancy Bible memory programs and a verse a day, two verses a day. That's fine if you're into it. I find the best for me is just by reading it, rereading it, and rereading it. I don't sit there and try to memorize it over and over again. That's fine if you're into that. I just read the scripture and it just sticks. The more I read it, the more it sticks. But whatever you're into, you know how your mind works. Attention, retention, and intention. You say, as I read this, I will live this. I will do this. My will is brought into focus, not just my mind. Because otherwise, this becomes just another Bible class. And the Lord knows there's already too many of them around that just spew out information without really the intention to let it change your life. And that's how we should approach the scripture. It should be daily. You should read this book every day. It's soul food, man. Food for your soul. Somebody wisely said, seven days without reading the Bible makes one weak. You become weakened if you don't have your spiritual minimum daily requirements. You need it. You and I should have a time every single day, morning, evening, wherever, whatever you're into, that you set aside for devotions or quiet time, whatever you want to call it, where you spend time alone with God and He speaks to you in His Word. It should be daily. Joshua was commanded to daily seek the Lord. Again, in Psalm 1, but in His law He meditates day and night. 
And then the results of a person who does it daily, he will be a fruitful, growing, vibrant person. So it should be daily. It should also be diligent. Study to show yourself approved. Put your heart, your soul into it. Not dreaming. Not placing yourself in an environment where you can be interrupted. It should be daily. It should be diligent. It should be direct. Before you grab secondhand books and commentaries and devotionals, it should be just the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the child of God. It should be direct. Then it should be delightful. Approach it expecting God to speak to your heart. When you get up in the morning, you open your word, don't be doleful, be delightful. Rejoice. This is God's word. He's going to speak to me. The prophet said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Delightful. Sir Walter Scott, on his deathbed, as he was dying, looked up to his aide, and he said, Read to me. Of course, the irony of it is that they were in Sir Walter's library. He had thousands of volumes, and his aide said, Which book? And he looked at him, and he said, Do you need to ask? The book, the Bible, the only book for a dying man. Well, it's also the only book for a living man. And if it's the book for you in life, it will be the book for you in death. If it's not, it really will hold no meaning to you because as you're on your deathbed, you won't even understand it anyway. Better to know it now and live in it and be strengthened in it. Also, as you read through the Bible, you'll understand God's program for your future. You'll be able to read passages like Isaiah 35, Revelation 4 and 5, and you'll know about the throne, the elders in heaven, casting down the golden crowns, so that when you get to heaven, you won't go, Duh, what's happening? And if somebody's up there going, though, what's happening? You'd be able to say, well, let me tell you what's going to happen next. These 24 guys are going to fall down. They're going to throw their crowns down. And then we're all going to stand up and sing this song. Here's the words. Let me tell you before you get into it. You'll know it's coming. You'll be strengthened. We um, have, but we don't have them completely there tonight, but we have some graphics that in our Through the Bible Study on Sunday nights, we're now going to use um, uh, visual aids and illustrations. We've got this humongous map that will come down uh, that they're working on, should be ready by next week or so, that will give you a geographical layout of all the lands of the Bible that we'll be able to point you to and show you, as well as side visual aids as we go through it. We have a model of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle that we'll be able to bring out and show you so that you'll be able to see it. To visualize is to empathize. You'll be able to put your heart into it because you'll be able to see it. Now, the Bible is divided in the Old Testament. Now, let's go from the Bible to the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. It's divided by the Jews into three sections. First of all, the law or the Torah, as the Jews call it or as the Greeks called it, the Pentateuch, which means the five Pentateuch books, the five books. And that's the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the first section. After the law, or the Torah, the Pentateuch, comes the prophets, the Nebeim, as the Hebrews called them, 
And they're the books of the prophets that most of you know about in the Old Testament. The third division is the writings, which includes poetry, a few of the narratives in the scripture and history. And the Hebrews called that the Ket Yubim. So they called it Torah, Neb'eim, Ket Yubim. I don't care if you ever remember that. But remember the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's how the Jews would categorize the books of the Bible. Um, Genesis. Let's just get right into Genesis. In the beginning, God. The word Genesis comes from the word in Hebrew, beginning. In fact, it gets its name by the third word that we've read, beginning. It's the book of beginnings. It's the book of origins. It tells us the beginning of the world, of the solar system, the universe, the beginning of man, the beginning of marriage, also the beginning of sin and evil and corruption, the beginning of religion, the beginning of races and nations, and the beginning of the Hebrew nation through which comes the Messiah eventually. Or we could say, the beginning of God's plan to redeem the world back to himself. The authorship of this book, and I'm going to do this briefly, but it's debated. Now, I believe Moses wrote the book. Jesus said Moses wrote it. That's good enough for me. And, and people will debate it, saying, well, you know, we know that Writing did not exist at the time of Moses, therefore Moses could not have written it. That's a pretty powerful argument. However, it is a very shallow and unscientific argument because we know from archaeology that we have discovered some of the ancient tablets from Mari, from Ur of the Chaldees, and the Near East, which show that not only was there writing at the time of Moses, it predated Moses by quite some time. That's a rather recent discovery. So we could put that to rest, and it's a lot easier for me just to believe that God gave either to Moses directly the Genesis account of the creation of the world, or it was passed down to Moses by others, and he recorded it. And by inspiration of God and preservation of God, it was kept so that we have the full account. The book of Genesis covers about 2,500 years of human history from Adam to the death of Joseph. And it's got several divisions. You could look at it from Adam to the flood, 1,656 years. From the flood to the call of Abraham, 427 years. From the call of Abraham to the death of Joseph, 400 years. Actually, I like G. Campbell Morgan's division of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, generation. Chapters 3 through 11, degeneration. Chapters 12 through 50, regeneration. Actually, you could divide it into two as well. The first 11 chapters deal with world history, primeval history. Then the second division is chapters 12 through 50, which speaks of four men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we see the lineage of the Messiah being carried out. What's interesting is that God only spends a short amount of time dealing with creation, the fall, the flood, and a long amount of time speaking about these four nincompoops. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Though the first part was no doubt a longer period of time involved, it shows me what God emphasizes. This is not a book of geology. It is a book of redemption that would lead us to Christ. It's very scant. And the importance is not the creation to God as much as it is the plan of salvation as it points to Jesus Christ. The whole scripture points to Jesus Christ. All of it. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. It's all there in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus Christ. So don't be um, shaken when you find this imbalance. Let me give you another example. We find it in the New Testament. There are four Gospels in the New Testament comprising 89 chapters. There are only four chapters of those 89 that cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life upon the earth. The rest of the chapters deal with his last three. 27 of those chapters deal with his last eight days. Why? Because that was his death and agony to pay for our sins. That's the most important part. We should remember to keep that in balance. All right. Um, since we don't have the map, you may just want to refer in the back of your Bible, if you've got a map, I hope you do. If you do, turn to your first map. That's generally a map that will cover the area that we're going to be covering in the book of Genesis. You know what? Forget it. Close it. <laughs> Wait till we got it and we can point to it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. In the beginning, God created. There's three different words used for create in the book of Genesis. The first two are very significant. The first word is bara, which means to take nothing and make something. Or to bring into being something from absolute nothingness. Now only God can do that. Man cannot do that. That's the gap in the theory of evolution. That spontaneous generation, fortuitous concurrences of accidental circumstance, have never been able to give a plausible explanation. To create out of nothing and to bring into being something. The second word is the word, the first is bara, the second is asa, which means to assemble by using existing materials. Both are used in this chapter. In the beginning, God <coughs> created bara, brought something out of nothing. Bara, the heavens and the earth. But now, down in verse 7, thus God made the firmament, asa, by using or assembling existing materials. Why the difference? I hope to give a partial explanation in just a moment. I, I got to admit, when it comes to creation or origins, uh, people are hot around the collar. It's a debate that's been going on for a long time. 
Did God really create the heavens and the earth, or was it by evolution, or as some people try, I think very erroneously and poorly to do, is by theistic evolution, God using the um, processes of evolution to bring forth what we see now? Did God really create it? Well, I love what the book of Hebrews says. By faith, we believe that the Worlds were framed by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made by those things that are visible. Now that's a striking statement. What the apostle says, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, I believe Paul, is that that which we see that is visible was made out of something invisible. How did he know about protons and neutrons and electrons, those things that comprise matter, those things that we can't see because they're so small, but bringing them together, we, we have things that we can see. But the things that we can see were made out of things that we cannot see. It's fascinating. By faith we believe that. So the man of faith is always leap years ahead of the man of science. Well, we've made an astonishing discovery. There's protons, neutrons, electrons. Yeah, we knew that a long time ago. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, the Bible told us that that which is visible was comprised out of things that were invisible. Hebrews 11.3. Now, what holds those things together since they have opposite charges that would naturally repel? <laughs> That's, again, been a stumbling block of many of the scientists in the community, scientific community. They've come up with fanciful theories, atomic glue being one of them, though they can't really pinpoint it. But you've got negative, positive charges. By nature, they would repel. When they are split and do repel, you have a tremendous explosion. What keeps them together? Well, it tells us in the book of Colossians that Jesus was the creator of all things. By him, all things consist, and by him, all things are held together. One day, he will release his grip on the material universe, and there will be such an explosion of fire, the Bible tells us in the book of Peter and Revelation, unparalleled in human history, as he just relaxes his grip. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there has been a debate that's been going on as to the idea of chance. Could this have happened just by chance? And, of course, that's the theory that is postulated in the theory of evolution. Unfortunately, it's not taught as a theory anymore, but as a fact. Though you cannot go back and watch it over and over again in a controlled environment to watch these processes happening as they postulate, they have moved it into the status of being a fact. One person asked this question, could natural processes by evolution over billions of years produce the genetic material found in one bacteria? Every now and then people will get together to examine that question. The most recent perhaps and thorough perhaps was done by 50 mathematicians and scientists, biologists at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia and the spokesman from MIT concluded by saying, quote, Based on our understanding of the laws of chemistry and physics and what we know about randomness, we see no way that the tremendous complexity of life could come about. 
In other words, there's not enough time or chance for the complexity of the genetic code to be developed. There's just not enough time or chance. Of course, you're not always told that in school. Why? Because atheism, agnosticism, humanism, evolution are religions. And people hold tenaciously to their religion. I think that if a person would with a sober mind and an open mind, examine evidence. And there are great scientific books and documents and papers that are replete with this kind of information. If you'd examine them with an open mind, I think you would concur that it takes much more faith to believe that we spontaneously generated rather than we were designed by God and created. And so when I see a person say, I believe that we by chance just have, really, you are a tremendous man of faith. I say, I, I don't have that kind of faith. It's beyond me. I'm just a dunce who believes that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Consider some of these facts. The sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. It is 93 million miles away from the earth. Why? Is it just a chance? I mean, why isn't it 93,000 miles from the earth or more or less, half or twice as much? If it were, of course, you can see what it would result in. The days and nights would be either hotter or colder. Man would burn up or freeze. But it just so happens that it's 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 93 million miles away from the earth, just by chance. The earth makes 365 and a third revolutions as it makes its course around the sun each year. Why not 30 times? Well, it would make our days and nights 10 times longer. We'd freeze or again burn. Just by chance. That's the way it is. And just by chance, for a fluke, unknown reason, there's a tilt of our axis at 23 and a third degrees in its relationship to the sun, giving us that beautiful broad range of four seasons. It is estimated if the ocean floors were just a few feet deeper or a few feet shallower, it would upset the oxygen and nitrogen balance in our world, in our atmosphere, that we could not sustain the biosphere of life that we have. Just by chance it's that way. And just by chance, there's that 79 to 20 oxygen to nitrogen with 1% of variant gases in the atmosphere. Just by chance, it gives us the ability to breathe. Why not 50-50 oxygen-nitrogen? Well, if you lit a match, you'd blow up. But just purely by chance. Let me tell you a story. A long time ago, years ago, Billions of years ago, who knows, maybe even farther than that. Great cataclysms took place in the universe. How the universe or the primeval matter was there to begin with, we really don't know, but for some reason they were there. Some miracle of fluke of nature happened and, and there, was, there were these forces and collisions in space because planets were collided into each other. There were explosions and bangs and uh, planets were formed by some of the debris of these collisions and they began a rotation and there was a water base upon one of these 
portions and uh, through more cataclysms, suddenly a piece of metal was formed. And that piece of metal formed with other pieces of metal. And eventually, over more billions and billions of years, rubber was formed. And it even formed into a certain style over the years, round rubber with treads on it. <laughs> Incredible. It didn't look like that at first. In fact, it was pretty rough. But over billions of years, the tread pattern began to form. And after more collisions, as the rains brought these pieces down through the riverbeds and the slimes of Texas, and as it was washed out into the ocean, more collisions took place. And anyway, as the story goes, over billions of years, suddenly a car emerged out of the ground. It just took perfect shape. It took a long time. And lo and behold, you just get inside and turn this little thing, and it runs. No, 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 hey, hey, that's a, that's a great response. <laughs> As I look at different kinds of cars in the parking lot, I look at them and I think, they're shaped differently, but there's one thing in common. All of them had a designer. How do I know that? Because there's a design to them. They're designed to accommodate human beings. They're designed to, some of them, the newer ones, aerodynamically shoot through space, giving you... Uh, you know, greater speeds, greater ability to get traffic tickets. Um, but I would have to conclude that there's design behind that. I look at my watch, I think somebody designed this colorful thing. My wife bought it for me, but somebody designed it. It just didn't happen. As I examine the human body in my years of medical training, how can I look at a car in its simplicity seeing that there's a designer behind the intricate design, looking at the laws of nature and of order and of seasons that are there all the time and distinct, and not conclude that I was not designed. I would really have to put my brain upon the shelf, I believe. I really do. Yet, I found something among my colleagues when I worked in hospitals and when I was going through radiologic training and on my way to pre-med, I noticed that virtually everyone in the classroom, especially my teachers, believed in the theory of evolution wholeheartedly. Of course, I was pointed out as the idiot. And as I would read up on some of this stuff and challenge the thinking of people in the classroom, I found an astonishing discovery. First of all, most intelligent people believe in evolution. That threw me. But the reason that most intelligent people believe in evolution is because they believe that most intelligent people believe in evolution. That's exactly right. I will grant that as a fact of life. Many of these intelligent people will not be able to carry on a conversation about the evidences for it or against it in creation. And most of them would probably change their minds if they were to read books by Henry Morris or A.E. Wildersmith, who has three PhDs in this stuff who's an avid creationist and teaches it on a scientific level, I think they would change their mind. In fact, he wrote a great book, A.E. Wildersmith, a great little book called He Who Thinks Must Believe. And the conclusion is based on the premise. He who thinks must believe. I find it just easier 
to take that at face value in the big inning. And it's not a baseball game, the big inning. It's in the beginning of the world. God created the heavens and the earth. God did it. By the way, if, and we've taken a long time on that verse, I know. You know why? If you can believe this verse, the rest of this book's easy, man. It is. You won't have problems with Jonah and the whale if you can believe verse 1 of Genesis. You won't have problems with Jesus walking on water. You won't have problems with the Red Sea parting or the Jordan River parting or the axe head in the time of Elisha floating. You won't have problems with any of those miracles if you can believe this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as unfathomable as that seems, ask yourself a question. If God is God, revealed in all of his glory and all of his attributes, is this too hard to pull off? I mean, you and I cannot bara, bring out of non-existence things into pure existence by speaking them, but God can. He can create. And if God is God, as God told often in the Old Testament, I'm the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth. Is there anything too hard for me? You think about that next time you have a trial. Think of Genesis 1.1. Oh God, this is a real big problem. Oh, wait a minute, I'm speaking to the one who spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. There's nothing too hard for you. That's a good way to begin your prayers, by the way. They did it in the book of Acts chapter 4. The disciples got together, engaged in a huge trial that was facing them as the Sanhedrin told them not to preach anymore in Jerusalem. They were being persecuted. This is how they prayed. Lord, you are God. You created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Then they prayed their request. But they were reminded of who they're speaking to. As my pastor used to tell me, difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. If God's doing it, no sweat. I was sure we'd get through two chapters. <laughs> hey, but it's a good introduction. All right, all right, let's move a little faster. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Some people suppose that one of two things happened. Actually, you can come up with the creation theories in two distinct columns. A, that the earth was in a very primitive form, kind of a glob, as God created it. Then he went on to work on it a little further. And out of that mass, make divisions, make air gaps or firmaments between the waters that were on the earth and suspended above the earth, that shroud of uh, water layer in the ionosphere, and make land and so forth. Or that there is a gap, it's called the gap theory, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Because it could be translated and it could be translated well, in fact, the earth became without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. It became that. Without form and void are two Hebrew words, tohu and bohu. I know that sounds strange, but it is the truth. 
without form, tohu, and void or empty wasteland, bohu. Well, it says that it was that way, and yet listen to what Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it. He did not create it, tohu, vabohu, and bohu, without form and void. He did not create it that way. Who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now the idea is this. Something happened in between verses 1 and 2. Some great pre-Adamic cataclysm. And the idea is perhaps that this was the time that Satan rebelled and fell. And he was placed on the earth Being the anointed cherub that covers the chief musician in heaven, he was cast down, the Bible says, to the earth. And the darkness that was on the face of the deep and the waters that covered the earth were a judgment of darkness and moisture upon the domain of the enemy. You might want to read Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that on your own, not right now, that would lend some light to that. And so that God created it to be inhabited. There was a fall that took place. Satan with a third of his angels in judgment. The earth became without form and without void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And I love this. The Spirit of God was hovering over the water. The face of the waters. The Holy Spirit in creation was already at work. And if indeed that theory is correct. Now to recreate God's creation. And God said, let there be light. Ten times in this chapter, it says, let there be. This is the Ten Commandments of creation. Literally in Hebrew, God said, light be. And light was. He didn't have to say, now, how can I do this? How can I get an incandescent kind of an environment? Light? Ooh, let's see, what could I put proton? No, he just said, light be, light was. God looked at the light, saw that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And now notice this. So evening and morning were the first day. Now in our society, we would say morning and evening were the first day, but not to a Hebrew. The day begins in the evening with a Hebrew because of this verse. The Sabbath begins Friday evening when they can see the first three stars in the sky. They blow the trumpets, the Sabbath begins Friday evening, continues all the way Friday night through Saturday morning through Saturday evening when it's nightfall again. That's one day to a Hebrew, beginning with the evening and then the morning. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. Or firmament could be translated airspaces because in Hebrew it's rakiah which has to do with the air, a firmament, division. God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Probably speaking of this air gap, this division of the waters upon the earth, and the waters suspended above the atmosphere in the ionosphere, that shroud or that water blanket, that, as we will see, enabled the longevity of man 
because the aging process was diminished by taking out some of the radiation that causes the aging process. So there was a division. Which, by the way, it is postulated by some of the creation scientists, would give you a global greenhouse effect. This beautiful consistency of lush green vegetation and, and real mild climate worldwide. It's interesting, some of the mammoths that they have uncovered at the polar ice caps have had tropical vegetation in their stomach and they were instantly frozen, it seems. Tropical vegetation, either they were carried there by some cataclysm, i.e. a flood, or there was a shift in the axis, or we'll get into that as we go on, but we don't have much time. But there was a division between the water on the earth and the waters above the heavens. Now even today, after this water blanket has gone and there are just the clouds, we know there's a lot of water up there. Lots of water up there. Over in Hawaii, the island of Kauai is the wettest place on earth with over 200 inches of rainfall per year. Imagine, 200 inches that falls from up there. There's a lot of water up there. Originally, there was a division, a firmament, an airspace, and then there was that water blanket around the earth. God called the firmament heaven. And so evening and morning were the second day. Heaven is used in the Bible three different ways. First of all, it is used for the atmospheric heavens. You look outside and you look up and Jesus said, Behold, the birds in the air in the heavens. It's the heavens just above the earth, our atmosphere. Then the Bible speaks about the stars in the heavens, the celestial heavens removed from just our immediate atmosphere. But then the Bible also speaks about the third heaven, as Paul spoke about in the book of Corinthians, the place where God dwells, the very heaven of heavens itself. But this is the atmosphere. He called it heaven. It was the second day. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. He gathered together the waters. He called them seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. Now evolution says that first there was marine life that evolved into other forms of life, yet the Bible teaches there was plant life at the beginning. Marine life came later. The earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. It could be better translated for you scientific minds or, or scientifically inclined, phylums, according to its biological phylum classification. God saw that it was good. <laughs> I just like that. God makes it, looks back, goes, I like that. That's good. So evening and morning were the third day. God said, let there be lights or light bearers in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let, there be for, let them be for signs and seasons for days and years. And so we have the lunar calendar and now the solar calendar uh, that men have operated off for generations and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights or light bearers. The greater light to rule the day. 
the sun, 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 93 million miles away from the earth. The lesser light, that is the moon, to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So evening and morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. Now, the waters were to abound with an abundance of living creatures. I love the ocean. Not only do I love the waves that the ocean produces, but I love what's underneath the ocean. I love to take a snorkel or a tank and a regulator, if I can do it, and go down and see what God has created. When we were in Hawaii a couple weeks ago, and we were right off the coast of Lanai, and you just go into that coral reef, and you just look at these fish, and you think, what a creative God we have. Those triangular butterfly fish, yellow and white with stripes going through them, bright colored. You, know, you just look at the different kinds and they're teeming. Some huge fish and some friendly fish and some not so friendly. But teeming with life. And birds flying across the firmament of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures. It could be translated sea monsters and some suppose this could even include in the realm of dinosaurs which are now extinct, but we have fossil evidence that they once lived. With which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. I like that. God blessed these animals, these birds. Jesus said that not one sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing about it, and He cares for them, won't He care for much more for you, O you of little faith? The very hairs of your head are numbered. If God would say to the birds, Bless you. He blessed them. And He gave them a commandment saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle, creeping things, the beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. You know, by the way, I haven't told you the word in Hebrew for God as used when God created the heavens and the earth. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. It is not El, as used sometimes in the Old Testament. It is not Elah, which is God in a plural form. It is not Yahweh. It is not Adonai. It is Elohim, which is a plural with a compound unity. A compound unity. And there is an allusion to the Trinity. Now we'll see that in just a moment. Keep that tucked in one side of your brain. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creature according to its kind, or phylum, cattle, creeping things, the beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, the cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth according to its kind. So all the creeps were created then as well. And God saw that it was good. 
And God said, God said, let us. Oh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing in the, that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Not in their image, in his image. Yet God said, let us make man in our image. Who is God speaking to? This is inner Trinitarian communication. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Elohim. Compound unity. Let us make man in our image. He wasn't speaking to the angels. We read that in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. That we're not, uh, that uh, the angels were a creation of God, but that God did not consult nor consort with his angels upon creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. A distinction is made. He created them. How is man created in God's image? Well, first of all, in a sense, man truly is a trinity. It's a, he's a tripartite being. We learn that in Thessalonians, where Paul prays that our whole body, soul, and spirit would be preserved blameless. And man can be divided up into three. We have a physical body, but we also have a soul, a suke. We have a spirit that communicates with God that has been fallen because of the fall of man that we get in the next couple chapters. So we are a tripartite or a trinity being. We are in the likeness of God, but it doesn't mean like the Mormons believe or even the New Agers believe or even someone within the, some people within the faith movement believe that we can become gods or that we are little gods. We're in the image of God. We have free moral choice. We have self-consciousness, self-awareness, the ability that separates us from every other created thing. Free moral agency. Now, though we are in the image of God, I got to tell you, I believe we're a faint reflection. I believe we don't see what God intended. I believe when you look at Jesus, you look at what God intended. And I think that the first man and the first woman before the fall, that's what God intended. And I think that as the strain of humanity goes on through the ages, we become less and less in His image. Tainted and marred by sin. Science tells us that we use only a small portion of our brain, our capacities. Think of harnessing the entire capacity of our brain. Absolutely amazing what some speculate would happen. Perhaps Adam and Eve were able, using much more of their brain than we could, no doubt. We use such a small percentage. Now, if you use such a small percentage, you better take care of what you got. Take care. We know that every sip of alcohol kills millions of brain cells. Now, we also know that we have, you know, trillions and trillions of, or billions of brain cells, it seems. And so it's possible to kill off some and 
it'd still be okay, but hey, let's face it, we only use a small portion of our brain, and I would venture to say we could use every cell we could get our hands on, and we shouldn't waste them. But man originally was in God's image probably more than we are at this point. Now God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. You know that God invented sex? i got to tell you that because people today think they've come up with some great new invention. The way it's used in advertisements and in magazines like, we're free from God, we have sexuality. God invented the thing, folks. It has been taken from the beauty that God intended it to and it's been abased to such a low level of base eroticism, not what God intended. But God created it. God intended it. It was His idea. Procreation and even for enjoyment. We're going to get into that as we get into the next chapter. But God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. I think that that would give us the freedom then to explore the earth by science. I love learning about science. I love seeing how things are put together. I like watching the Discovery Channel, showing how those seeds are some of them transported by animals or uh, they, uh, that great seed, I think it was the sycamore leaf, that it's got this little propeller on it. And uh, as it, wind comes by, you see the thing, just like a little helicopter, going, and it just starts flying, you know, several feet away from the tree to implant. Or some seeds are little burrs that attach to your socks or your clothes or to the fur of your dog. And, you know, he walks a mile down the road and it's planted on the ground as you shake it off. Amazing ways that God has this reproduction after its kind. And that code is implanted within the seed. And as you explore what God has created, there is room for scientific advancement. As we explore the heavens, the moon, the scientific exploration upon the earth, the seas, it's fabulous to see what God has created. Fabulous. Does the Bible say that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search a matter out? Search it out and find what God has done. And to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We're to have dominion. We're to rule it. It's not to rule us. We're to use what God has given us for the benefit of mankind. That's why I think it's great to hunt. It's great to fish. It's great to kill animals. To use them for human consumption. I don't have a problem with that. Does that mean we should trash or we should torture animals just to do it? No, I don't. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there seems to come a, an almost Hindu belief that every single form of life is sacred except human life. Save the whales, man. Those poor little dolphins. Oh, those poor little owls. But let's have abortions. You know, in India, I met a bus driver who was going down the road and had to make a quick decision between a cow and a human being, and he opted to kill the human being so that he might save his sacred cow. There's a lot of sacred cows among many people today when it comes to the strata and the importance of life. Now, in the beginning, verse 29 seems to say that man was a vegetarian. However, 
after a while, you'll see that God gives them all the animals to eat. But in the beginning, God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Hey, you'd be a lot healthier if you ate more of herbs and more vegetables and things that grow. Scientists tell us that now. We need the roughage in our stomach. We need dark green vegetables. And instead of... Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons we're less and less in the image of God. Just... If we are what we eat, then we're greasy, uh, low-protein, high-fat kind of people. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made. Indeed, it was very good. So evening and morning were the sixth day. We will conclude with chapter 1. Next week, read chapters 2, 3, and 4. Don't have to give the Bible introduction next week. We can pick up with the recapitulation of creation in chapter 2, the Sabbath day, and uh, we'll go on from there. I had more things to share tonight about creation. We'll wait till next week to get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of books the only book for a dying man, the only book for a living man or woman. Lord, I want to thank you for the hunger for the Word of God that is represented by these people. What sheer joy to dig and to study and to get an overview of this book. And Lord, when we realize that you created the heavens and the earth. And as the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Night unto night they utter speech, day unto day they give forth knowledge. There's no voice or language where their speech is not heard. We look around and we marvel at it, Lord. And I pray that we would not only appreciate it, but appreciate the one who created it and worship and serve the creator rather than just the creature. You who brought it into being. And I pray that we would remember Genesis 1-1 this week, no matter what we face. You created the heavens and the earth, and nothing's too hard for you. We entrust our lives and our weeks to you in Jesus' name. Amen 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 to 